0: Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram.
1: Hello, and welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Charlotte Bond. I'm Megan Lee. And I'm Lucy Houndsom. Cosmic horror is an unhelpful term by itself. H.P. Lovecraft himself is quoted as saying that the fundamental premise of cosmic horror is that common human laws and interests and emotions have no validity or significance in the vast cosmos at large. But Wikipedia seems to bring this down to a more personal level when it states that the hallmark of Lovecraft's work was a sense that ordinary life was a thin shell over a reality which is so alien and abstract in comparison that merely contemplating it would damage the sanity of the ordinary person. To help us explore the subject of cosmic horror, We're joined by Primi Mohammed. Thank you for joining us, Primi. Thank you for inviting me. Would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Oh, sure. Uh, I'm a uh, scientist. I work for the provincial government, and I also write uh, sci-fi and fantasy, and arguably it looks like cosmic horror.
1: And your book Beneath the Rising is due out very soon, if not already out.
2: Yes, uh, March 3rd, 2020.
1: Fantastic. Some of the online recommendations for cosmic horror films put movies like Alien in amongst films like Annihilation and Lovecraft adaptations like In the Mouth of Madness, which leads me to wonder, what are the essential elements of cosmic horror, or is it a case of we just know it when
2: we see it? I thought about that. Um, I think it's a case of we know it when we see it because the the villain, kind of, or, or the Antagonists, aside from in a lot of cases, like an alien, there's also human antagonists, is that you've got a villain that you can't understand, sometimes just an evil force, but also spirits, gods, monsters, like an alien, often very old, I think that's a really common one, predating humans, so you take away the idea that they're even created by human belief, you know, like gods sometimes said to be from other dimensions or space, or sometimes said to be from Earth, but invisible, hiding, or sleeping, often awoken as the inciting incident. I think that's kind of an interesting one. Uh, Or otherwise encountered, again, like an alien. I I really, really love the Alien series. I think it's probably my favorite film franchise. (laughs) And I think the result also, aside from the villain, is, is important for cosmic horror. So you get quote, madness, unquote, or cult behavior, or or irrational behavior, like loss of the senses, or um, terror, death, missing persons. Uh, you think of uh, Arthur Macken, Macon? Am I pronouncing that right? Anyway, in The Great God Pan, you know, you look at the villain, and you go mad absolutely instantly. You, you lose your mind at once. So the result is you can't fight back against the villain, because Well, because you're mad possibly, or just because you you don't know how and you can't find out how because the villain is so much older and more powerful and, and more incomprehensible than you. It's I think those are the main criteria for me. It's it's kind of that's how I know it when I see it. And you also don't really know the the motivations of the bad guy. You know, uh, in some stories, that's easy, right? Like in Othello, it's jealousy or in Macbeth, it's it's, it's ambition or whatever. You become a villain because you're spurned and you want to get even or you want something that you feel is yours or someone's hurt you or whatever. But in cosmic horror, things are just naturally bad. And sometimes they're bad because they don't care. And sometimes they're just bad.
1: (laughs) No, I thoroughly agree. When I was thinking about it... I realized that madness or insanity on the part of the humans is usually a a key element to it. And that's usually in response to the incomprehensible. And you were right about sort of predating humans and predating human belief, not kind of being reliant on it. Um, And your idea of there's no motive to the bad guy, you're right, in cosmic horror, there's never like a prequel where you have how the bad guy came to be a bad guy. It's like, no, they're just bad. And I think it even goes beyond that. There is no motive. It's just their existence. So the ones I tend to like best in my cosmic horror are films. And I was thinking about Event Horizon, where it's just a state of being. It's not even gods or anything like that. It's just another plane of existence. There is Cabin in the Woods, where at the end it's all about the god that isn't really doing anything. It's just by existing, it destroys everything. And again, annihilation, this idea of established order coming apart just by the existence of something being there and tearing the world that we know it apart and everybody coming up to it going, what the? (laughs) And just sliding into insanity or at the very best incomprehension.
2: yeah absolutely i um haven't actually seen uh any of those films i'm ashamed to admit my cosmic horror consumption is mostly books but yes that's a, that's exactly the idea is that not only can we not cope but we can't even think of how to cope by the time we really need to
1: I'm the opposite to you. I like my movies to be cosmic horror rather than my books. And when I was thinking about the books that I really enjoyed, um, I thought of Hammers on Bone by Cassandra Craw, which is cosmic horror, but kind of comes at it from another angle. You don't necessarily have this madness. You just have this idea of the incomprehensible existing in the real world and The Ballad of Black Tom as well. But, I mean, what would you recommend as good cosmic horror books?
2: Oh, uh, actually, I was going to recommend uh, both of those because I love those. <laughs> Excellent. And... Uh... <laughs> Yeah, definitely Victor Lavelle, yeah, Ballad of Black Tom. Um, probably K- Caitlin Kiernan. John Langan, The Fisherman, definitely. Uh, who else is out there doing this? There, there's quite a few that have sort of, I don't want to say, quote, reclaimed Lovecraft, unquote, but are working in modern cosmic horror, uh, like Charles Strauss, The Laundry Files. Uh, Ruthanna Amaris, um has a series that kind of flips some of the original Lovecraft tropes of, of the Deep Ones and that awful obsession he had with, with miscegenation. And this looks at kind of the descendants of of those Deep Ones and their humanity, which uh, is really interesting.
1: Juman is on my, my wish list of uh, books to get. I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one.
0: Uh, for me, I'm really into my cosmic horror Uh comics so <laughs> we've got all the bases covered um i i really love um Fatale and uh lock and key and i haven't watched the new netflix um adaptation of lock and key but i loved the series it was so good okay so one of the things that i liked when it comes to lovecraft describing his own stories and like what this cosmic horror thing was about was him saying that his stories are based on the fundamental premise that common human laws and interests and emotions have no validity or significance in the vast cosmos at large, and so this this focus on human insignificance, which often steps into nihilistic territory to induce terror in readers, you know why is it so terrifying to imagine that we are insignificant as human beings?
2: Mm, you know, I remember thinking. About that, when I first read uh, both The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, do you remember the the Total Perspective Vortex? Oh my goodness, yes! Yes, when I was a kid, remember? And uh, again, in Martin Amis' The Information, which is not cosmic horror, except in the sense that publishing generally actually is cosmic horror. But uh, there's a character who wants to write a book called something like, I think it's called The Increasing History of Humiliation, or something like that, uh, in which he describes how the so-called decline from like a, an, an anthropocentric to a heliocentric to a terracentric to basically a void centric or nothing centric idea of the universe also describes the decline of human morals and values as well as our perception of self-worth. And I think that might be it. I think that might be the terror. It's, it's kind of the inertia of that very heavy, dense historical legacy or, or like a vestigial organ that we think we don't have because we can't see it of the great chain of being idea being human used to be a big deal, (laughs) you know, it made us important and special, and, you know, there was a deity that had put us at the top of this chain and said we were the boss, and now what we're seeing is that we're the center of nothing, A, we're meaningless, which puts us back on the level of, uh, oh, surprise, (laughs) the things that we used to think were meaningless, like insects, and I think it also means that we have the uh, the Again, the inertia or the vestigial organ of thinking insignificant means we can do whatever we like with them. So now we have this new horror of thinking, well, that means there must be something that can do whatever it likes with us.
1: Constant caveman fear, isn't it, of being bumped back down to being the prey rather than being the, the top one. And you might kind of say it's something to do with humanity's arrogance, that it's For human beings as a species to really be threatened, you kind of have to have giant gods because nothing else will do it. A shark or a a land predator, some people will be able to outwit it, but you can't go up against the gods. We've got masses of folklore and myths saying how that's a very, very bad idea.
2: Exactly. We've even got myths saying what happens when you just steal from them. It's never a good idea. So how does this kind of
1: macrocosmic approach impact the practical aspects of storytelling? How do you get those big... Gods into a story where it's going to be understandable and relatable and not just really hammy when you look at human protagonists. And I wanted to ask you this, especially because you've cast children in central roles in Beneath the Rising. Well, older children, they're not like four or five, but sort of teenagers. So, you know, what did you find were the practical aspects of dealing with that and kind of incorporating children in an adult world and also children in the world of the gods?
2: Well, I think that's super. So, first of all, that's a super interesting question, but I think one thing it kind of had to do was defeat sort of two things. So the time in which it said is also important because that's the slope of the rise of the internet in which we had all started to feel like we were important again because we ordinary people uh, had voice and reach that we didn't previously, even though that's an illusion. None of us were important. Again, we were just louder. And two kids uh, particularly teenagers, and particularly older teenagers, I think, are figuring out their place in the world. They're not just empty vessels to dump schooling into anymore, and we, we, you know, with no responsibilities except to learn and play, but they're not adults yet either, with adult responsibilities. And I think while you're figuring out your particular place in the world as an individual character or perhaps as us, as humanity at a large, you swing between I'm nothing, I'm worthless, to I'm great, I'm invincible, I'm going to go study Jupiter. And, and again, I'm sure we've all known teenagers like that, you know, that, that pendulum of self-esteem. And that echoes the, the world around them. And I hope I communicated that I tried to echo that in the book as well. You know, as you're growing up, it's easy to be so very, very sensitive to how important you are. Or aren't you know it's and it's less when you're younger and it's less when you're older but there's a period where it's just torture
1: it's really interesting because obviously when you're young you don't really think about your mortality it's it's something that happens to other people it's something you don't necessarily cover in storybooks and then you obviously go through a period as you get into double figures where you do start to to face that and, and the reality of that I think you're right in that teenagers, you really can it's really troubling, a really troubling time and filled with insecurity. But I think there's also an arrogance to teenage years that you don't get in later years. You suddenly start to know stuff and you suddenly start to feel powerful and you start rebelling because you get a sense of your own worth and you get a sense that you do have knowledge and power within this world of adults and you're just stepping into it. And I look back now on what I was like when I was a teenager and I went, God, I really didn't know half the stuff that I know now. But at the time, I didn't think like that because I had a little bit of knowledge. I thought that I was, you know, really, really an adult and and on the way. And I think that's something that you kind of pick up on, particularly with Johnny's character. But it has a wonderful you know, effect that actually she does know everything because she is this prodigy. So it, it's kind of taking what teenagers want to be and going, actually, what it, would it be like if you were like this and you did know everything and you had cured cancer and you got all these wonderful ideas? I thought it was a really nice balance to kind of get the arrogance of all of humanity into a single teenager. And then having Nick as the nice balance of sort of the insecurity of it all as well.
2: Yeah, I think that was almost kind of the goal with her was if you – took away the the limitations of science, supposing you did have as much money as you wanted to research whatever you wanted, as many people as you wanted, as much uh, intellect as you wanted, as much equipment as you wanted. Uh, Maybe what could you achieve? And then you kind of sit back, oh, maybe there's a reason some of those limitations are on there. Um, (laughs) So I think that's kind of where the idea of the book came from, was uh, limits, boundaries.
1: It was also really interesting, I found, that you had these whatever essentially kids let's face it because they're still underage trying to make their way through the adult world and yes they might be taking on the elder gods but they've got to get through airport security first and i thought that was a really good way of kind of balancing the troubles that people face and obviously you build in a lot of sort of racial tension within it as well because of the color of nick's skin and also the fact that nick um as he says, uh, brown person is traveling with Joanna, uh, Johnny, sorry, who is a young white girl. And just how they are viewed within society is something else that they have to combat. So it's not just all the elder gods, it's society as well, that is really, you know, putting pressure on them and and really ramps up um, the difficulties and the obstacles in their way.
2: Yeah, I agree. You know, it's funny, I I did want Nick to kind of be deliberately in counterpoint to Johnny and her privilege, you know, that she's white is important. It means no one glances at her and automatically thinks monster. And, and you look at the statistics, if, even if you look at things like domestic terrorists or, um, you know, men who commit familicide or serial killers, the vast majority of whom are white, it's still not automatic. Whereas Nick feels that if you look at him, you see a monster.
0: Thinking about like the, the, Kind of macro aspects of this as well. Like, I find it interesting how, you know, as Charlotte was pointing out, like, yep, kind of counterpointing the kind of really day to day, mundane things that all of us can kind of connect with, like going through airport security versus fighting against these gods who just look at us as insects. But then, how also do you maintain kind of tension when it you know or how do you set it up in a way that can feel fulfilling for a reader if kind of the point is that these elder gods they can just you know step on us and that's that it's kind of that thing of the opposite problem of when you go into kind of a, a typical hero narrative where you know that the good guys are going to win and you know trying to keep that tension up when you know that they're all going to be all right in the end this is kind of the opposite of how do you make people care or or hook into it if the kind of premise is that after all humans mean nothing and they're going to be nothing in comparison to these um creatures or forces that they encounter.
2: Oh, that is so interesting. Yeah, because you're right. Um when you look at a lot of the older cosmic horror stories, they're actually a bit simplistic. I mean, aside from all their other problems, is that I left my house And I went to a place I wasn't supposed to go, and I saw something and I went mad. Or the variation on that, my friend did that and he went mad, and now I'm visiting him in the asylum. (laughs) So you get the idea that there's nothing you can do, and there's only one way the narrative can go. So yes, that was definitely a challenge with this. Like, What do you array against something that traditionally you would not be able to fight, let alone understand? But I kept thinking of um, H.P. Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror, which is, well, it's a train wreck in various ways. But aside from it being a train wreck, it's interesting because the people that are fighting it are um, educated people. They're they're scientists, and they discover a way to make a powder that you can spray on a shoggoth so that you can see it and then defeat it. And I thought, well, that is at least the opening of a door to suggest that there may be a way to defeat these ancient evil things if they notice us and don't like us. And maybe that's, maybe that's science. Maybe that's knowledge. Maybe that's a humongous amount of arrogance also. But <laughs> you have to leave the door open a little bit to answer the, the central question of any book, I guess, which is, do things turn out okay? Well, I think
1: it's it's kind of interesting because whether or not things turn out okay, usually the rule between when writing standard fiction is that your protagonist and your hero is as awesome as your bad guy is evil. So if you have a really really bad bad guy and the protagonist defeats him then that makes the protagonist super awesome. So it's kind of ratcheting it up. But then when you get to cosmic horror, it kind of all goes out the window because you've got a case of, oh, I've got this really awesome bad guy that no one can defeat. Oh, no one has defeated him. Oh, <laughs> I kind of feel like it's almost the antithesis to all other storytelling forms because no one defeats the bad guy at the end. Or if they do defeat them, they're kind of too broken or they've made too many sacrifices that they can't really enjoy it or... or- it's hate or savory it's almost the the frodo version isn't it you know you kind of get there and you're so destroyed by it that there is no happy ending for you maybe he's the cosmic horror element of tolkien
2: yeah and you know actually that's a good point that makes a strong argument for the lord of the rings uh, actually being cosmic horror like what is sauron anyway where does he come from <laughs> or or look at the silmarillion which I admit that I've never finished reading, but I started it, and that felt like cosmic horror to me.
1: I think we need to bring Lucy in here. What's the, what's the cosmic horror elements <laughs> of Tolkien? Lucy, you're a resident Tolkien expert.
3: I think that's a really interesting question because I have read the Silmarillion, but it was a very long time ago, and I was fourteen. <laughs> and uh, but I've read quite a few of his other tales, like uh, The Children of Húrin and Beren and Lúthien, that they've been you know released uh, recently. It's really interesting because he plays a lot with the idea of gods and deities as being ineffable and unknowable. And the thing that I like about Tolkien, uh, but also the thing that frightens me a little bit about Tolkien, is that he has this kind of cold, epic edge to his writing that makes you feel very insignificant. So it touches on what we you were saying earlier um, about humans being so far removed from Valinor, like the land of the gods. We are in the darkness to the east, you know, shoved away from the light of illumination. Um, and we're left to fend for ourselves. Um, and there is only a kind of... And the way that he, he talks about the two trees lighting up each end of the kind of, when you're back in Valinor, it's like these both, um, there's like a tree of gold and a tree of silver and, and the lamps and stuff. And they're kind of, there's this, it's this whole idea of like when the trees are, or the la I think it's, uh, this is terrible. I'm sure if anyone's listening, it's like, oh, she's got it all wrong. But there's definitely two trees and definitely two lamps. And I know that Mordor, Mel Melkor, I think his name is originally, he kind of breaks the lamps and darkness cascades over the the kind of holy land. And this is really like amazing moment where suddenly even the gods themselves kind of feel alone and lost in the vastness of space and the, the kind of outer void. And the fact that like the void could reach in and actually bring darkness to their creation. So I think the argument that Tolkien is cosmic horror really has some traction in it. Cause the more I think about it, the more I'm like, yeah, there's, yeah, there's a lot of stuff going on there, but I think it it comes through mostly in the Silmarillion where he, you know, the, the actual narrative is not quite so structured and it's more a series of um, short stories in a way that he's building his mythology. Okay.
0: But even there, when you were talking about it, cause <clears throat> Primi, if you don't know, I'm the one who doesn't like Tolkien. <clears throat> um, <laughs> It comes down again to to gods and what i find so interesting about the kind of the relationship with gods in cosmic horror is that you know there's this nihilistic core of cosmic horror this nihilism kind of is a rejection of religion and yet at the same time it just keeps coming back to gods over and over again As, you know the elder gods they're a staple of the genre but it, it seems like it's sort of counterintuitive. They, you know if if cosmic horror and nihilism is there to reject religion, the thing that gives people meaning in their lives, why then do the writers keep coming back to the idea of gods as the the kind of fear inducing, big cosmic force trying to fill the void
2: <laughs> desperately? <laughs> A literal void. <laughs> <laughs> this is really interesting to me, and I think it comes up in Beneath the Rising, or I remember thinking about it at the time at least, uh, and I think part of it actually is to do with our problem with the definition of the word God, because there's nothing in the word God that says they have to be nice. But, like, as, as you say, most religions do give people meaning in their lives because they take them out of the increasing history of humiliation, right? Like, you're told repeatedly, Probably starting in childhood, uh, as a member of this religion, you're important. You matter to a benevolent and powerful force or deity, or uh, several deities if you're Hindu or whatever. You can change its opinions and decisions, say with prayer. You can change public policy. You have a community around you that feels the same way and may even protect you from danger because they feel the same way. And the thing that makes you human and important and alive, uh, your soul or whatever, will survive you, probably, because your soul, too, is important. If you take that away, maybe what you get is atheism, or maybe what you get is something else, right? So, like, the the structure and setup of religion, you know, where you're important, you're noticed by a deity, but instead with something not very nice, (laughs) and something that doesn't take a personal interest in you, or if it does, uh, that in and of itself should be something remarkable, right? And the idea of a god is is very appealing. I think that's why we keep coming back to it. Even my friends who are atheists, who who write what you would probably call atheist books, can't help but throw gods and religion in there. You know, there's something powerful. There's something all-knowing. There's something that can do things we can't do, such as manipulate physical laws. There's something that knows things that we can't know, not just that we don't, but that we can't. So I think the issue there is that no one says any of these characteristics have to be coupled with anything nice or good, right? Like a religion can be the worship of something horrible. And I think that's why gods keep coming back to cosmic horror. You need something that has the association with the word God, but is also bad.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting when you're talking about the association with the word God, you know, and I was thinking, what kind of other names for things or, I guess, monsters or creatures of something that, you know, what do we have names for ideas of that would have the same kind of awe-inducing power that the term God does? And I don't know that we actually have that.
2: Yeah, and you see that come up in a lot of the older stories as well. They try to say deity or spirit or force, but what they keep coming back to Really is God.
1: I think gods also have the element of because I fucking say so. (laughs) There doesn't have to be rationalization there with anything else. As we were saying earlier, you know, you have a backstory, you have a motive. But with gods, it's just because I said so, you will do this because I said so. It is this way because I say. And I think that's quite a powerful tool to use in storytelling, particularly if you want something that is just unfair, is nihilistic, all that kind of stuff, it's all wrapped up in the word God. Because exactly like preemie said, whoever said gods have to be nice, <laughs> you know?
0: Okay, I really feel like I need to bring up uh, my philosophy degree here because I so rarely get to uh, <laughs> bring it into conversation. But one of my favourite pieces of philosophy is the Euthyphro, which is the account of Socrates' trial written by Plato. And there's an amazing piece in it where uh Socrates basically says to the court you know what is holy is something holy because the gods love it or did the gods love it because it is holy sorry and that just popped into my head of of you saying like you know well gods can just do whatever they like and it's interesting because there is you know probably only interesting to me or other philosophy nerds hello to you if you are out there um (laughs) or I could just be on an island on my own that's fine too that the gods will just do whatever they want to do because they want to do it? Or do they do what they do because something else is kind of influencing them as well? Anyway, that's a total side note. I'll uh, let Charlotte get back on topic.
1: (laughs) I think philosophy should have a a greater place in in writing. And where where is it better than in cosmic horror, where you are dealing with gods? I mean, it's all being drawn in. We've just put cosmic horror into Tolkien. Why can't we put philosophy into cosmic horror?
3: I think this is a really great opportunity to talk about, since we've already brought one discipline into it, let's bring in another one and talk a bit about kind of that age-old tension between science and religion, which are so often at odds. Um, But in your novel Beneath the Rising, you use science as a way to let in the old gods. Uh, So cosmic fiction often tallies up science with religion, with dabbling in one resulting in disastrous consequences in the other. Um, so what do you think it is about these two opposing elements of humanity that they're often thrown together? I think that's a really interesting question when I was reading this back because it's like, well, you sometimes talk about magic in the same vein as, you know, like it's this kind of magic versus religion. But I think there could be an argument for saying also science versus religion. And is it because both these things are trying to explain the universe and our place in it, but they're going about it in very different ways.
2: Yes. I think literally that, that is exactly it. It's, um, our place in the universe, our, again, increasingly diminished place in the universe where the more we study it, the smaller we get. And I think it's that whole fear of the unknown thing kind of, right? Not necessarily part of our arrogance and thinking that we can know things, but just that as humans, we want to know, we need to know. We're supposed to respect gods because they're gods, right? And and part of their resume, their qualification for being a god, um, is that they do know things that we don't know, and maybe they choose to share some of them, um, like in their holy writings or whatever, uh, and maybe they don't. Um, and scientists, uh, uh, who I'm not saying we're like gods, or are gods, um, I've, I've been zapped and irradiated and poisoned too many times for that to be the case, also kind of seem to be the repository of secret knowledge. Like, if we, if, if regular people don't know what they know, isn't that kind of scary? You know, you, you can't risk manage if you don't know what the risks are. Uh, what are. What are the gods doing up there? Are they plotting against us? Are they about to unleash something good, bad? You know, they, they didn't send an email. And, and same with scientists, I think. Kind of, what are they doing in that lab? Can it be trusted? why won't they tell us? What might happen? If we don't know what might happen, do we know what might not happen? Uh, how how can we know? So I think that's where those come from, is we want to understand. And there are these figures that are telling us, no, no, you can't. Only I can understand. So that's, that's definitely where that comes from, I think.
1: Well, having brought in fantasy, it would be remiss of me not to now bring in science fiction, and so the thing that came up in my mind when I was reading this question was Arthur C. Clarke's, uh, one of his three laws, that any, sufficient, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So if you were in the Stone Age and you had a mobile phone that you could play patience on, <laughs> you know that's going to be magic to the people around you. So I, I think there's this wonderful interrelationship between science and magic that the boundaries are... Uh, sufficiently blurred in the human mind anyway that it lends itself really well to cosmic horror because you can sort of draw in science and go okay well we know this amount of science but actually this thing over here is magic so i hope it's not too much of a spoiler to say that you've got clean energy as one of the uh you can't see air quotes magic or science um experiments that johnny does that is really significant in this novel and that's the idea that it could be possible but to us it is so so far in the future and so unknowable that it appears like magic to us. So I think this boundary in our heads where, you know, you can't quite distinguish what's science and what's magic really helps in this genre in, you know, bringing the two elements together.
2: Yeah, I agree. And I I like the way you put it there also, because humans aren't really comfortable with blurry boundaries. They make us nervous. We like to know which side of the fence that we're sitting on kind of, I I think that may be an evolutionary throwback, but We like to know whether something is science, whether something is magic, uh, whether something can be understood and how we can go about doing that. When we see something that kind of smears all of those together, that's a source of tension, I think, in in the human mind. And also, um, I would just like to say, I hope no physicists actually read this novel because none of that science is real, FYI.
1: (laughs) Ultimately, Cosmic horror can be defined as the fear of the other in an uncaring universe, if you boil it right down, perhaps. Um, So many cosmic horror narratives include what is arguably a sleight of hand, with narrators claiming that they don't actually have the words to be able to describe the horror they've seen because it's so much other. Do you think this is just an easy way out, or is it even more terrifying if something is so alien, so horrible and so awesome that we do not have the vocabulary we need to adequately describe it
2: oh i i i love that you said that i love that you pointed that out it's so bad in lovecraft but you also see it in in some other authors again arthur Mackin comes up uh think of the great god pan like you look and you're like oh no my brain um i think it was intended to be terrifying though now it comes across as a little bit comic kind of you know Those older guys, you read stuff around that time, and some of it's extremely... I don't want to say florid. Maybe I do, but you're used to reading a lot more description um, in some of these stories, right? Like, the monster is the size of a bear, it has long black claws, it has purple tentacles, it has, um, I don't know, glowing red eyes, it stands, yay feet taller than my guide, Uh, its breath smells like this, it has eight horns, I don't know. So the reader pictures it and goes, oh, how scary. But if it can't be described because it's so indescribable, like you say, that kind of puts it at one remove from anything earthly, right? It makes us doubt our perceptions. It makes us doubt our vocabulary. Maybe it makes us doubt our, our senses or our sanity. It can't be compared to a bear or a horse or a dragon or a squid. It's it's so outside of us. We're drifting with no frame of reference, there's nothing to hold up as a mirror or a scale. And I think kind of as we've been saying through this chat, that, that in and of itself is meant to be scary. It's meant to make you feel small and confused or to remember a time when you say were little and powerless and didn't have the words to describe what you were experiencing. You know, we, we parse things with words. As we get older, we learn more words and now we have no words. Something has just been taken from us that we thought we had. And that too, you know, is kind of reason for confusion and fear. Uh, Now, of course, with current prose, it it just seems lazy. But I think that's where they were going with it initially.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think of it as a, a staple of the horror writing craft, this idea of having a monster that is either so terrifying that, like you say, you can describe it and still be horrified, and having a monster that is hidden in the shadows Um, and i think obviously in lovecraftian fiction it's very much it's too weird to describe and it's just got too many tentacles and and this that and the other but when i was thinking about some other more sort of modern ones um i found the ritual by adam neville being listed as a, a cosmic horror and i'm not quite sure how i feel about that but i can kind of see the idea with the cultist overtones and the idea that in the beginning the backpackers who are out there, they can't see what is stalking them. And it could be a beast, it could be a ghost, it could be the personification of the forest itself. You just don't know. And all you hear are these kind of yipping barks. And to me, that is more terrifying than when you actually meet the creature itself. And then I was thinking about Alien, which again, was listed in a couple of of cosmic horror ones. And I don't quite know that I would place it in cosmic horror. But I can kind of see where they're coming from, that you've got something terrifying that is lurking in the shadows that is the predator. It is it is almost godlike in its inability to be killed. And you see flashes of it and they are the scariest bits, not when it's necessarily, you know, going on a rampage, although aliens was great fun. But like that bit in the air ducts when the captain lights up his flamethrower and you see just for a minute just teeth and claws and slime and that is almost I feel like cosmic horror personified just that brief flash of something truly awful and then the darkness returns and you're done for
2: that is absolutely one of my favorite scenes in film you know because the aliens you don't see them for part of that scene they're just dots right on on the little
1: they don't even have a physical form they're just dots (laughs) oh they're just
2: they're just thoughts, and then aliens. When the the marines are all standing in that hallway, going, "Boy, it's hot down here. Our infrared detectors aren't working," and then the walls start to move. We didn't see that there. We understood that to be something else. We thought it was a wall. Actually, it's about ten aliens packed together. So,
0: I mean, it's not cosmic horror, but I did kind of feel that in. Empire Strikes Back when in kind of the the original version where you sort of only just get a glimpse of the creature on Hoth that attacks Luke, I found that far scarier than when they did the kind of 1997 like redo where George Lucas threw in a lot of CGI. Um, But then they added like the whole creature and they had him there for longer and you saw his entire body. And I think... That kind of ruined it for me. It wasn't as
3: scary then. It was much scarier when I could make up the rest of it. That's that's exactly it. I think it relies on your imagination to fill in the gaps. And to be honest, our imaginations are far more powerful and terrifying than anything a movie director could conjure up. Hey, well, at least mine is.
1: (laughs) wondering if we were all agreeing on the Star Wars point there. Are we all in agreement for once? That's... uh...
2: (laughs) No, I I was just thinking of how horribly disappointing the, the re-versioned ones they were, were. They were terrible.
1: Too, too much of a good thing. That's it. And I think what Megan says, it's it just spoils the charm of the original one. And I know that of my reading from it, they had the Emperor's Slugs. Have you ever heard of that? Um, in the original versions of um, Return of the Jedi, they got like white face paint or something on Palpatine's um, cloak that hangs around his face. And so they kind of colored it out. And you can see that there are little dark, darker sections in the original um, film. And I saw these as a kid and I wondered what they were and I thought they were terrible and you know, couldn't quite figure it out. And just the mystery of it was so terrible. And then when I learned that what it was was basically then coloring it in afterwards and then they removed it. And I kind of felt like, that was part of the mystery of it and the fact that you couldn't explain it and it just applied to this one character really added something to the film that they took away by just making it better and I was like no I liked it better
2: oh but disappointing (laughs) yeah
1: it was definitely all better when they were doing uh
0: physical effects rather than all the cgi but you know uh, that's a different subject back on topic (laughs) With cosmic horror, it's really hard to separate cosmic horror from H.P. Lovecraft, who arguably is the founder of this subgenre. But he is also a very problematic figure, and his racism is very well documented. I mean, how does his racism play out in his cosmic horror narratives, and then how does it carry on in sort of modern interpretations?
2: Yeah, I, um, I was on a panel about this a couple of years ago, and... Uh... Yeah, it's, it's so well documented. There's no way anyone now could be like, oh, well, you know, maybe everybody, all of his friends just caught him on a very bad day or something. But it where it seems to have definitely played out, and again, I have not read probably even a third of his stuff, but with him putting people, you know, people of color squarely in the same camp as anything scary, to him, they all came kind of from the same shoebox. He saw them, and and wrote about them as not different from your average cosmic horror villain, I think. Sort of unknown, unknowable, Uh, maybe not powerful necessarily, but something that you couldn't understand and didn't want to. They only understand each other. They've come here to, uh, we don't know, do something we don't like. Invade, uh, take over, hurt, or you know, damage otherwise, say by having children with the local population, which, the more you think about it, is a ridiculous stance to take because Lovecraft, being American, and I think it is so important that he was American in particular, he knew very well that white people had done the same to America under their idea of manifest destiny. Like, to the indigenous people of the continent, white people were cosmic horror. And and it's ridiculous because the on-page racism in the stories where it appears, is completely unnecessary and doesn't add to the plot. And all of the implied racism, like, oh, uh, they're not Italians, they're fish people, you know, could have been completely different. And it's so pointless, it doesn't add to his fiction. You have to think a very, very hateful person was unable to put a filter on himself, so that he could write something that would have been better if he had left out the racism, even at the time. And then you look at Algernon Blackwood, and he actually goes the other way. So people of color in his stories, say like in in the Wendigo, I don't know if you guys have read that one. Like So the indigenous people that live in Ontario, they're not objects of fear, but of pity. Um, they're childlike because they're uneducated. They're, quote, uh, useful, unquote, to bring on hunting trips because they're unusually sensitive. They can smell danger like dogs. They're not scary. All the scary ones have been killed off. You know, now they're just tools that maybe you could use to fight against your enemy. They're they're both just ridiculous and bad, and to me, they feel like a failure of imagination, that you would take your fears and put them in your story like that, as if you were writing in your journal. I don't know. I don't like it.
1: So, is that what Nick grew out of, your character in Beneath the Rising? Did he grow out of this desire to tackle the racism and the racial anxiety in previous texts? Because I found him a really complex and interesting character, and it's difficult to talk about him fully without giving the ending away. But obviously, as well as feeling sort of the pressure of society and you know, always looking at his skin colour, he kind of feels a pressure by just being Johnny's friend, because he is always the inferior one. I mean, everyone is inferior to Johnny, but because he is her best friend, he kind of feels that more keenly than others.
2: Yeah, um, by the way, thank you for not giving away the ending.
1: Oh, we don't do spoilers on here.
2: <laughs> Surprised by that, thank you, yeah. But um, yeah, it uh, it wasn't actually deliberate, at least at first. Um, I wasn't thumbing my nose at Lovecraft exactly, but I did think that him not being white is important to the story in a way that people not being white in Lovecraft sort of wasn't important to the story. Like we were saying, Nick is already a little paranoid. He already feels that he's being seen as the monster, and I really really wanted to make him, in particular, out of anyone in the book, the most human of all, so that he could kind of stand as a lighthouse against Everything else.
1: Clearly,
3: uh, you're in Breaking the Glass Slipper and we like to talk about the roles of women in pretty much uh, everything to do with science fiction, fantasy and horror. But, you know, women and female characters in general have historically fallen into quite stereotypical roles uh, in this genre. And we do spend quite a lot of time trying to isolate and understand the reasons why these tropes continue to to crop up. Do you feel that women occupy any particular place in cosmic horror, like
2: either as uh, trope characters or stereotypes? So from what I've read, and again, of course, I'm not an expert in this field, pretty pretty minimal. Like there are some wives who wait in terror for their husbands to come home from something scary. So not going to happen. He got eaten by a monster or he went mad. And there are some witches or sorceresses, fairly minimal, like Asenath Derby, etc. And there are some sad victims um, or vessels of possession. So, like in Great God Pan or uh, like Lavinia in the the Dunwich Horror. So, for the most part, they're actually, like, they're not in the story at all, most of the time. You can read entire anthologies of this stuff and get like 100-120 pages before seeing a woman actually on page who gets to say something, for instance, and is not just mentioned as uh, oh, my wife, at home, who hopes I come back. You know, part of me kind of laughs at this, like, well, women would have better sense than to go out into the Standing Stones and get attacked by some extra-dimensional garbage monster anyway. And and part of me is kind of, oh, you know, a piss off. Like, it's not exactly that I think all of the, all of the classical cosmic horror writers were misogynist per se. It's just that disregarding women as anything but kind of witches- waifs or wives is sort of what they did, and I'm not without knowing about their lives. I'm concerned that it reflected the roles of the women they knew personally, and also that they read about. Which obviously, when you have highly, highly patriarchal reference material as well, either erasing or minimizing the role of women, even where it might showed up, they they kind of they don't bother with the reference points. So they're thinking okay, well, the story I want to write uh, barely has any romance, so there's no point in putting a woman in as a love interest. And you certainly wouldn't take a woman on a moose-hunting trip to Canada. I I can't think of why you would. And I've never seen one in the occult section of the library. And, uh, oh, and my Mary isn't very eldritch. You know, I, I worry that their points of literary reference might have been like, you know, like the witches in Macbeth, so... They've got dark forces on their side. Or or popular novels, like women are just scheming to get married. I can't use that. So they didn't see women with agency because the women they knew didn't have very much agency. And the women they read about didn't have very much agency. And coming up with a reason to put a woman in your story was harder to come up with and more unrealistic than a monster with a billion eyeballs. So I think it was just a total failure of imagination, maybe also combined with not liking women.
1: (laughs) It's
3: actually amazing, isn't it? Because this is something we've touched on before that how hard can it be to create hundreds of intricate secondary worlds with full of mythical, different creatures that we've never come across before. And yet it's so like, impossible to imagine emancipated women with agency making independent decisions you know on their own and being in traditionally masculine roles and and i just think it's this this whole um genre science fiction speculative fiction by its very nature it should be challenging societal norms but it really has problems doing that and i think that kind of is reflected in exactly what you've just been talking about.
2: No, I, I think of the one, I think it's H.P. Lovecraft story where the character travels, uh, whatever it is, like a million years forward in time and finds this giant archive with um, all this writing in it and it's mysterious and bizarre and blah, blah, blah. And I keep thinking, I haven't seen a woman in this entire anthology for about, 300 pages why are you so fussy about certain things and so lazy about certain things jerk <laughs> <laughs> so i was thinking
1: about more modern journeys into cosmic horror um and i must admit like i said i'm not massively well read up on the book so i appreciate Preemie's thoughts on this but thinking of hammers on bone the ballad of black tom the ritual they were mostly male heavy and then when I thought about the films that I would categorise in this, so Cabin in the Woods um, as a modern one has um, a, re- a couple of really strong female characters. I mean, I know one of them is supposed to be a trope, but I quite like her anyway. And one of the survivors in it is female. Um, Event Horizon has the wonderful Jolie Richardson in it. Annihilation obviously has Natalie Portman in it. And then if you compare that to things like... Um, 2001 a space odyssey or the thing by carpenter they're very male dominated as well so i kind of feel that certainly in films cosmic horror is definitely moving towards including more women although i haven't necessarily seen that in books but i might just be reading the wrong books
2: yeah and i think that's uh that's partly of a way that film is probably slightly ahead of books because in a book i think we still have subconsciously all of us every gender possibly we think there is a reason that this character has to be X, or Y, or Z. So people think to themselves, well, if I've got, say, a a shuttle pilot or something, um, I'll just put anybody in here. And the anybody always turns out to be a white guy? You know, it takes a deliberate effort to put a woman in there, in that position, because we're not seen as the default. We're seen as someone who has to have a reason to be there Um, and I think in films that's a little bit more flexible and more easy because you're presenting to the audience something that they can already see and don't have to think about like Natalie Portman's character is there because she deserves to be there because this is her job you know
0: I'm thinking of uh, one of my favorite films which is arguably has cosmic horror elements Um, I don't know if anyone's seen Spring It's about five, six years old now, but it's really good. But it's also, it's a romance film while also being horror. And uh, I did enjoy reading lots of uh, reviews and things of people saying like, oh, if you're a horror fan, you'll hate this because there's like so much romance in it. Uh." Um, (laughs) But in there, it's a real... You know, kind of a double act. It's it's a man and a woman kind of falling in love, and they're both very well rounded, interesting characters. And yeah, I really liked that from the perspective of ha- of having uh, an important woman with agency and her own motivations in in, in the cosmic horror film, um, where perhaps sort of again my previous encounters with cosmic horror as a subgenre have been very masculine. Um, it was really interesting to see that played out in, in a romance.
2: Yeah. Uh, I don't know if the thing counts as cosmic horror. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, I read the story that it was based on, um, which I'm trying to remember the name of now. I, I think it was called who goes there or something like that. Does anyone remember? It was written in like the, the late fifties, I think, or early sixties. And the entire cast is men. And the premise is that they are, you know, they're at that, antarctic research station or arctic research station or whatever and i kept thinking if you rewrote the thing now um you'd probably make it about half women because why wouldn't there be half of the scientists as women there but i think at the time it just was not something you would see a woman doing so again that failure of imagination
1: (laughs) with his terrible racism has Lovecraft left us a problematic legacy as a founder of cosmic horror. Has he doomed subgenre? Is it? Do you think it's possible to appreciate the mythos he created without excusing his, racist, his racism and his misogyny? And I was thinking back personally, although I don't really read a lot of Lovecraft, I was thinking back to H.G. Wells, which I read as a child. Uh, I read a lot of his short stories, and The Lord of the Dynamos was one that really stuck with me. And looking back on it today, as in now, It's filled with racism because the main character is a person of colour. And I think the suggestion is that he worshipped this machine because he was of an inferior mind and was therefore subject to it. But when I look back on that story, the one thing I remember about it is what we were talking about earlier, how it was just unknowable. It was bizarre. It was... It was this idea of technology that was akin to magic, was akin to religion. And I, I just did not pick up on the racism as a child. But if I read it now, I would just cringe at it. But So I don't know how to feel about this story that I loved as a child that I now look at and go, actually, he was saying something terrible about this person of color when actually I thought he was just talking about humanity in general.
2: Yeah, and it's it's terrible. It comes up so often, you know. Um, I don't think the, the legacy, as, as we're calling it, is doomed per se, particularly if we look at the proliferation of modern cosmic horror. Um, and, and we all understand that even more than no one perfect exists, so no one perfect is producing good art. Even more than that, crappy or problematic people can produce good art. Or they can produce bad art, um, as in a lot of Lovecraft stuff, that has some fun or interesting individual elements. and. You know, of course, people like those without being a bad person. Um, you're a bad person if you like the racism, though. But that's why I do think it's possible to appreciate the mythos without excusing or condoning his, his bigotry. Because, you know, the racism, the misogyny, the anti-Semitism, um, the classism, my God. It's not separating the art from the artist exactly, but very consciously separating what we want to keep from the art and sort of throwing out the rest. Like, in particular, I, as a woman of color, enjoy the idea of literally stealing the stuff that I want out of a sandbox for myself. The other thing I find about modern cosmic horror, which I hope I tried to do, is taking some of that racism and taking some of that misogyny and and flipping it deliberately on its head and, and putting a spotlight on it to show how bad and real it was, and smashing it apart instead of sweeping it under the rug. And I think that might be the way forward when we are talking about the legacy of someone who produced problematic art, is maybe don't pretend it didn't exist, show it out for how bad it was, and then steal it, and do something that he wouldn't have liked with it, as, as I'm trying to do. I keep thinking if HP Lovecraft had met me in person, he would have just bolted. He would have been so disgusted, he might have just run away, or fainted, or both. Uh, especially if I was holding a vegetable or a piece of fish or something. <laughs> Point it out and break it, I think, is the way forward.
0: Okay, I mean, we've we've talked about some serious things. We've delved into the nastier side of the origins of cosmic horror. Now I think it's time to have a little bit of fun. So let's talk about viscera. Let's talk about slime and goo. And, you know, what is the significance of cosmic horror's use of gelatinous substances over the more traditional horror tropes like gore?
2: Oh, I love it. I love it. me um, this, this makes me think of my last job or last – Several jobs- I'm sorry, science is disgusting. But, yes, it it tracks right back to fear of the unknown, right? Right back to first principles, doesn't it? You look at a bright red puddle on the floor, and you're like, oh no, blood! I could be in danger, because blood stays on the insidey parts. But, you know, if you had to, like, clean it up, you could cope. It's a known thing. You know its properties, you know how it's made, uh, where it comes from, maybe not who, necessarily. But like, you look at a puddle of gloop, again, like at my last job, and you think, oh my god, what the hell produced that? You don't know. You don't know if it'll do something to you. Maybe it'll eat my boots. Um, you, you don't know how to deal with it. It's scary to not know. And for cosmic horror, of course, on top of all of that, is that a thing? Or is that something a thing produced? Is that actually a monster? Uh, is it the color out of space? I'm not touching it. I'm not touching it. I don't want to touch it. <laughs> you know, that, it's got that v- visceral, like you say, that visceral disgust that you don't necessarily get with gore. And I think, or, or I hope, I think it bothers people when the villain doesn't have blood inside of it either, but like gloop or, or slime or eye You think, Oh, no, it's not a human. It's not an animal. But, like those bleed, those have gore. It's more like a bug and that's, that's terrifying. That's alarming.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, thinking of alien again, you know, it's blood is like acid. Don't want to let that stuff touch me.
2: Exactly. And you're like, Oh God, I can't cope. I can't cope. I could probably cope with blood. I could, I I likely could cope with blood. This clearly isn't blood. Everybody run away.
1: (laughs) It's the idea of the other intruding into our universe again. It's, something that is not at all like us that doesn't even have the basic constituency of blood and it's in our universe and it's right in front of me and as Primi says, it's a puddle on the floor. It's not kids, And I think that's why it tends to appeal with cosmic horror. It just is an extra added element to prove the otherworldliness of whatever terrifying thing you're facing. As if it hasn't got 17 mouths and tentacles or whatever, it's also got slime for blood and that's just icky on a, an, under your skin level.
2: Oh, and the other thing I love about that, too, is um, last fall I went to this fantastic exhibit at, uh, I think it's, I think it was called Blackwell's, um, and it was about, you know, spiritualism, mesmerism, that kind of thing, and the repeated mentions of uh, ectoplasm and teleplasm, so this gloopy stuff that was your evidence that your mind had traveled to another dimension or, or to another plane of existence and had come back, and now there was loop. And I just, I thought that was the, f- the funniest thing. Like this right here is proof that our seance is real and that something happened is because there's a blob of something on the table. So it's teleplasm. That's what it is on the table. Don't touch it.
0: <sighs> okay. I did not know that, but now I'm getting flashbacks of when I saw Poltergeist <laughs> at far too young an age and
3: I'm just, <sighs> oh God. <laughs> did anyone see District 9?
2: Oh, I did,
3: yeah. Yes, right. It's like one of the only kind of horror-ish films I've ever watched and I felt like shit after I watched it but it just reminded me of the guy turning into like one of the aliens (laughs) and that was so horrific and I just wondered whether that might be part of the reason why we don't like and the cat food thing and oh, there's just something about body parts, not being like you know the alien being inside you and changing into Ooh. it it's just something that's really icky about it and and it's like a lot maybe it's like something to do with loss of identity um but there's something like it's it's more um visceral than that
2: <laughs> yes because and and exa- that goes back again to the kind of dichotomy between glute and and blood right like suppose you woke up one morning and you were shaving your legs and you cut yourself and what came out wasn't blood thats horror. that's that's a very alarming thing that has just happened because the world works a certain way and the way it works is that we're humans and we do have blood.
1: <laughs> Our huge thanks to Primi for joining us to examine this epic topic of literature.
2: Thank you guys so much for having me on the show.
1: It's been great to have you. I'm not sure if this discussion has clarified the definition of cosmic horror or not, but I feel that it isn't the destination that's important, but the journey. Your cosmic horror can be utterly nihilistic when no one survives, or it can end with a sense of bleakness, but perhaps a touch of hope. The villains in the subgenre can be gods or monsters, or possibly just monstrous gods, but their origins will be incomprehensible, their mere existence will bring destruction, and those humans who survive encounters with them may yet find themselves slipping into madness. Breaking the Glass Slipper
0: is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsam. Please help us spread the word, subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.